Welcome to uh, number 36, meetup number 36 in the data on Kubernetes community. My name is Bart Farrell, and this is meetup number four out of five that we're doing this week. It's been an intense week. Next week, we also have four meetups planned, so we're going pretty hardcore for the next few months. Um, good news in our community. Things are moving forward. We, uh, next week, will have a lot of our meetups uploaded to a CNCF page because we are now moving inside of the CNCF. Very excited about all the new developments there, and there'll be more news about that stuff, too. However, uh, the, the focus of today is, is not that. Um, Tiffany is an extremely interesting person who I met a few months ago and very kindly got me in touch with Ravi, who is also working at Harness and got me on their podcast called Ship Talk, where I had a wonderful time explaining my background, how I got into doing what I'm doing. Um, and, and so, but all that happened because of Tiffany. And so when I first met Tiffany, it's like, all right, I see you have this DevOps profile, but then I started looking around a few other places. I kind of like to spy around on people, or I guess you could say lurk to see like what, what other things they've done. And two things stuck out really quickly, and I'm pretty sure we're going to get to both of them today. One was uh, Tiffany's experience as a photographer. And the other one uh, was Tiffany's experience in the Apollo project. So I'd like you to talk about that briefly before we get started. Um, but anyway, Tiffany, for the people who don't know you out there, I can also say as well, Tiffany has a lot of podcasts and interviews you can hear talking about lots of different kinds of things. And she was also thinking about launching her own podcast, and that's exciting too, so there'll be more news about that. But Tiffany, how are you? What are we going to talk about today? Yeah, thanks so much for that introduction, Bart. Hi, everyone. I'm super excited to be here today. Um, I'm actually going to be talking about two things I really enjoy talking about. One is DevOps, and the second one is photography. So um, when Bart and I were talking, when we, we had first met, you know, we were kind of shooting around ideas about what we could talk about at this dev meetup. Um, and and Bart had noticed that, you know, I did a little bit of photography on the side, um, and and that it may be kind of cool to align whatever I end up talking about with photography. And it made me kind of think about, well, what are, what, you know, photography is such a big concept. It, it, there's so many parts to it, right? There's cameras, there's all the equipment that you need. There's different kinds of photography. So I kind of likened it to DevOps because in the DevOps world, there's so many things going on. You know, you hear about cloud native, container native, and then there's this data side. And then there's even the aspect of, well, practices and principles and like, what does it even mean? You know, and, and so you may have like all of these questions. And uh, I just thought it may be really interesting to liken the two and and kind of um, do this fun session on on both um, and and to kind of share a little bit more about myself I, I do work at a startup called harness and we are a CICD platform we help uh, simplify and scale software delivery so this is very much in our wheelhouse um, but before that I was I was also in the open source space uh, I was consultant at Red Hat and then um, uh, I eventually uh, ended up at Red Hat after uh, after some student research that I was doing on um, on just building content aware systems. So the Apollo project was one of those, and and I had a um, very academic background. I'm even um, finishing my grad um, my graduate program at Georgia Tech. Um, so I, I will be a master's of computer science later this year. <laughs> Woo! That's great. Good. Yeah. And, super and so, and, and what are you, and what are you focusing on in that master's? Just curious. Oh, it's uh, it's computer science and then machine learning. Okay, so very light reading. Uh, <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> yeah, you know, just casually, casually. And you've, and you've been doing this, and you've been doing this studying online, I guess, the whole time during the pandemic, or how have you been doing? That? Yeah, it's online. Um, I've been taking one class for over three years now. <laughs> um, yeah, working. Uh, working full-time while doing part-time classes. Wow. Fun. That's, a lot of, that's a lot of work and being involved in podcasts and lots of other things because, and also as well too, is that we've had, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, Alex Jones is also in the DevOps Institute. Yeah. 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 We had Alex I, Jones I with us. Guy. Yeah. He's amazing. He's great. <laughs> he's a wonderful resource. Um, I love all the stuff that he puts out on Twitter um, and very willing to help out. Um, does coffee, coffee chats as well too. If anybody ever wants to grab a slot, you should do the same thing, Tiffany. Um, yeah, and <laughs> yeah, the thing is like coffee conversation, what, what more can you ask for? So anyway, can you tell us a little bit more about what you do in the DevOps Institute and then also a little bit more about your role in Harness? Yeah, sure. So, um, I, I create content is the best way to, to share it. I, I share best practices, guides, just getting people to this part where they can invest into their 
um, CI, CD process. They can invest into their software delivery processes. Also spend a lot of time doing research and just uh, field studies, um, figuring out where people are struggling. And in those particular areas, you know, I talk to um, more experts in the field and try to get to to this part where we can we can help simplify and scale software delivery, um, because I, I think nowadays it's really it, it's really challenging if you are not like the Amazons of the world or Facebooks of the world to do software delivery, because it, it just seems like this process is so disjoint. There's so many scripts. It takes like a whole village to deploy. When in reality, we kind of want to make this accessible because it, at the end of the day, the people who are using your software, they don't care if you're using a CI CD platform. They don't care what you're using. They just care about that end value that you're delivering. And so we're, we're trying to make that process easier. And so a lot of my work centers around that at Harness. Um, and then, you know, there's also a lot of great communities out there to help support that. So, you know, Data on Kubernetes is one of those communities. Mm-hmm. The DevOps Institute is one of those uh, communities. And, and so is the Continuous Delivery Foundation. So I think we're just starting to see a lot more people invest into this idea that software delivery needs to be accessible to even startups or smaller organizations that don't have like 300, 400 developers on the teams. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a, so We can say a lot of this comes down to empowerment. Um, you know, or we can say creating more of a level playing field so that folks out there don't feel like so helpless when comparing, as you said, rightfully so with the Amazons and the Facebooks out there that just, it's so daunting um, to think, you know, how can I possibly compete? That's really, really good. All right, cool. Um, so do you want to share your screen so we can start taking a look at photography? Yes, let's share screen. How's this look? Looking good. Sweet. Cool. Thanks, everyone. Um, so yeah, let's let's get to this presentation. I mentioned that I was excited about this because um, this is a topic that I really enjoy. And, you know, there's a lot to cover in DevOps. And, you know, this is only going to be, again, like a snapshot of it. But uh, I did want to provide some of the things that I think are most important about DevOps and spend that time talking about it. And so maybe you are looking for your next career in DevOps, or maybe you just want to know a little bit more about DevOps. Um, there's also this kind of weird third case where uh, you already know about DevOps. You, you're probably a DevOps engineer or DevOps manager, um, but you know this sounded kind of cool and you want to learn more about photography. You'll also get that in this session. So um, I'm actually really excited to be here with you all today. Um, and, but with that, I, I do want to share like um, some of the, the things that we'll be covering in the session. And I, I always want to step back and talk about sort of the history and the reason why um, things things came about the way that they did. And I want to look at it through the perspective of photography, but also uh, DevOps. And so we're, we're going to cover that along with some definitions. And then we'll actually get to the uh, practices and tooling and, and some of the technologies, you know, that you would uh, need to know in order to really, you know, start your DevOps journey or start your DevOps career. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's always really interesting to kind of think about how things were then versus now. And if we look at it from the perspective of photography, there are, there are a lot of things that have changed. Um, you know, when we first started out, there was this longer process of having to um, when we wanted to take pictures and share it with people, we'd have to either draw them by hand, right? So not really a picture. Um, but then there was also other process of um, bringing in our, our, our pictures into a dark room and processing them over time. And then eventually, maybe weeks, months later, you'd get your, your end result, you get your picture. Versus now where we can kind of do all of these things um, in, you know, with our phones in the, by the touch of the hand um, and, and immediately too, you know, you could, you could easily process your photos, take them and then share them out into the world. It's not this super long process and it's not like you have to really even process it. Even uh, everything's already done through technology. And so you can tell the difference between these two things, it's, it's very different. Everyone's mindsets are different around it. <clears throat> if you were to take someone who only knew about the dark, uh, about darkroom processes and, and photography through darkroom, um, then they may not even 
even be able to begin to understand what it's like taking pictures through a phone or taking selfies um, and posting it to Instagram or Snapchat or any of other any of our other social media channels. And I kind of liken that to software delivery then versus now. In the past, we were we would you know traditionally have these waterfall methodologies. I mean, the processes are still the same, right? We're still going to gather requirements. We're still going to design. We're still going to build our code and verify it, and then you know eventually deliver it to people. Like those those steps are still the same. Just like in photography, we're still going to take the picture. We're still going to process it, and then we're still going to share it out into the world. Uh, the only difference now is that we have we have DevOps. We have this DevOps lifecycle that encourages people to continuously deliver value. And so even though the pieces are similar, um, the way that we work with them is different and the mentality behind it is very different. And so I, I really like sharing this because it shows like, you know, things haven't changed that much, but, uh, but we are now in this process of making things better and faster and even just more accessible to everybody. And so you may be wondering like, okay, there's all of these pieces, um, but now we have to change people's mindset around how we deliver software. It's not just, it's not, you know, it doesn't work to just build code all at once, the whole entire thing, and then ship it out because we're going to see issues with it. We're going to have things that we were going to want to change. Requirements may have completely changed by the time we delivered um, all of the code that we implemented. And so, you know, that that led to things like the agile methodology and then now and then now this progression into DevOps. And so getting to a DevOps culture is actually pretty hard because you have to change these mindsets. And when you when you talk about changing a mindset, when you talk about implementing a DevOps culture, you actually have to work your way into each of these kinds of layers of a DevOps culture. So the mindset, the values, the principles, and then that's when you can actually get to the practices and the tools. It doesn't make sense to just give a photographer to give someone a, a phone when they have no idea about how to use it, why they should be using it. You know, what, what are they even going to do with it? And so um, this is why uh, in this session, I, I kind of want to work through some of these, these layers all the way down to the level of practices and tooling. Um, and, and I do want to liken it to photography, right? Because um, this is a journey, you know, you're going to learn this process and you have to develop from the mistakes, right? You have to focus on what's important. You have to capture collaboration and then you have to polish uh, what you know. You have to polish and practice your tooling. You have to practice your new set of skills. And so getting to a DevOps culture means that you're committing to, uh, to many of these things. And I actually can't see chat, but no, you're um, all good. You're all good. But I have a question. Because yeah. um, you, you know, and you, maybe you'll get to this later. When you're talking about this, is something that's quite recurrent, and and we actually we spoke about yesterday, and and I try to mention it as often as possible. It's one thing you talk about the technology, but talking about the culture, all right, and talking about the culture, and really preparing and change management and organizational development and all those things. We live very much in an age of plug and play. And so I think that in the same way as like, oh, well, if I can download, you know, Kubernetes or I can install this program, that means that I'm that I'm ready to go. But I think this idea of being ready to go involves much more than that. It's not to say that there's a perfect, you know, time frame that you could say like, all right, we're going to install an agile, you know, agile methodologies or scrum or DevOps, et cetera. But normally when companies want to be doing this, is there any minimums you think they should be thinking about in terms of time, resources, conversations, roles that will be necessary to make these uh, transitions successful? Yeah, I definitely think so. Um, and it really does stem from understanding the big picture at the end of the day, right? Because you can throw in, it's like you said, you can throw in any technology you want. I mean, you could, anyone in leadership could say like, hey, we're going to go into a service mesh architecture any day. And you know, what happens it sounds, is, it sounds really good. It sounds really good. Yeah, they'll sell you on it. They'll yeah. sell out sell you on it. And everyone will agree because they think like, yeah, this is gonna be this is gonna be awesome. This is gonna be fun. Uh, and then what happens is you just have um, the layers of tooling and practices and they just float into the abyss. That's what happens. There's nothing to ground them. Um, when you three months later, when you ask someone, hey, why are we doing this? Or what is this providing us in terms of benefits? Or Five, even five years later, you'll ask, um, 
what did you do over the past five years? What did, what value, what, what value did you deliver to the customer? People that's won't it. know how to answer that question. And, know, that's, and, that's, and that's my other question as well, too, is that when, for you, what's a serious conversation about value or how can, you know, uh, does value come first? Does culture come first? Do they both play off of each other? What do you think? Yeah, I think at the end of the day, too, if you work for an organization, you work for a company, people are going to ask you, like, what were the outcomes? What were the things that you achieved? So you're going to get that question from someone, you know, and that that question will trickle down its way through management or whatever your uh, company hierarchy is. And then if if you don't actually have certain conversations about, well, how is this a benefit or what value is it bringing? Then you're not going to be able to answer that question, you know? Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Um, I think what the point is, I think the major point is here is that these things just aren't as simple as the few clicks that it might take for something to happen. And also when you're talking about, I mean, if it, whether it's a small organization that's using cowboy management or a traditional consulting firm that's got, you know, thousands of employees, um, really thinking about the stakeholders and having a key role of empathy, I always think is really, really important. Anyway, keep going. Definitely. And we'll see, we'll start to see a lot more of that too in this presentation. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I did want to to actually share a definition that I think works well for DevOps. And I'm sure everyone has their own definitions and understanding uh, that works for them. Um, but I, I think this one is the one that will drive a lot of the conversations that we'll have in this session. And to me, DevOps is the collaboration and collection of people, process, and technology. And we use it to continuously deliver software value because we do care about that, that end goal of the fact that software doesn't live to, or we don't create software for it to exist in the silo. We create it to, to help other people. We create it to deliver value to our customers. And, and so this is this is the this is what DevOps means to me. Oh, uh, yeah. one second. Can you go back to that previous one? Um, yeah. We got we got a couple because we got a couple of uh, we got a couple of questions. So awesome. one is from Corey. Thank you, Corey. Do you think that uh, do you think companies use DevOps engineers as golden trash bins with the idea of throw anything at them and expect them to make gold out of it? That's a good question. Um, <laughs> That is a good question. I think that there's a lot of expectations around de- practitioners, DevOps practitioners, right? Because um, DevOps includes so much that you know, if you if you just throw anything at them, they'll they'll make value, they'll churn out value, right? When in reality, um, you know, no one does it alone. No one no one delivers value all on their own. Um, you know, you could have that rare case where you just have one DevOps engineer and they're a one-man team and they get everything done, but um, that just doesn't scale. You know, if you if you need to deliver, say, like, you know, hundreds of microservices or maybe different types of applications, just it just doesn't scale. Um, but but yeah, I definitely do think that there is that pressure, and I think we need to be realistic about it because. At the end of the day, our delivery teams are cross-functional. They involve our product uh, folks. They involve our security folks. They involve developers, IT ops. And so um, as much as DevOps engineers are you know, praised to be this uh, golden trash bin. <laughs> I love that. I've never heard I'm that. Me either. Me either, me either. <laughs> It's, it's, it's more of their, their, they're more of a bridge and a catalyst to uh, collaborate, to, to facilitating these, these aspects in, in my mind. That's, that's how it should be, ideally. Okay, good. And then we got one more question. Um, is it the job of DevOps to do change management? I think that's a really good, that's a really good question as well. In terms of an organizational role, obviously DevOps will be involved in, in some elements of change management, but Perhaps should there be other roles that might be uh, incorporated first? Yeah, I think it's uh, it's really interesting. There's actually, um, I think there's like a book on DevOps topologies that explains like the different types of uh, DevOps engineers and their their roles and functions across different organizations because it is different. From my time consulting, there are some DevOps engineers who solely focused on owning the CI/CD pipeline. Um, there are some that did a lot of platform engineering. They, you know, they. There are some other ones that implemented uh, continuous, like continuous monitoring, observability into their applications. So, 
Um, I, I think it, it depends on your organization, what you end up doing. Um, so it's, it's worth asking that question. If, if you are considering like a, a move into DevOps, like what are, what are the things that I, I own? Because sometimes that line is, is blurred and depending on the roles that are already in that organization, maybe there's another group that owns it versus DevOps. All right. Good. Keep going. Great questions. Um, I, I do now want to go through some of the key principles in DevOps because um, if you are um, if you are trying to implement DevOps, there's there's a couple of principles that will allow you to kind of realize why it is that we have certain practices that we do in DevOps. And it'll also probably help you to make a decision whether or not you want to implement a a practice or a tool. I think principles are things that apply to larger teams versus practices and tools. They'll apply to individuals or, or smaller teams. So a lot of the practices that teams choose choose uh, are, you know, are, are team specific. You'll have a team that wants to use Prometheus and Grafana. They'll use a particular stack. And then you'll have another team that uses a different stack. And that's their choice, right? But at the end of the day, all of these kind of development teams, ops teams, they fall under some of uh, our umbrella principles that an organization has. So if you really want to drive this understanding of DevOps, you really do want to focus in on the principles. And the first one, I think that's really important, that's um, sort of really defined DevOps in, in a bunch of ways is this principle about creating with the end in mind. So if you're creating with the end in, the mi in, the, in mind, you're really thinking about that, that deliverable, that value. Um, and that's really your vision, right? And that vision will inform everybody else on your team. Um, even the person who um, is working on the tiniest service, right? Uh, the, the tiniest application in a sea of services, they'll still be able to understand how they're contributing to that big picture. And, you know, I think in that process too, when you're creating with the end in mind, you're also committed to, get, you're also telling yourself that you're committing to getting there. So whether it's, uh, whether it has to involve a certain enablement or certain tools or certain resources, you're committed to supporting everybody who's involved in this process to get there. And I think that commitment is really important because when you don't have that commitment from um, your teams, then you don't have the support. And so you'll see oftentimes when you're working with uh, different organizations or working on different applications or projects that um, people just don't know what's going on or, or what's happening because there's no commitment to supporting that. And, and you know, we mentioned service mesh earlier. If you're not committed to fully um, you know, to realizing the deliverable, you'll get lost in the sea of all of these configurations and nuances with service mesh. I think this this idea of having a vision, like you said, something to be tested, whether it's a hypothesis or things like that. I think also with photography is that some people might just start pointing and clicking, but I think, and I'm curious as to your opinion as, as someone who's really worked with, with photography, before you take a picture that you have in your mind what picture you're expecting to get. You know, that there can always be something a little bit random, but, and you'll probably get into this more later, but the ingredients that are necessary, distancing, lighting, exposure times, all that kind of stuff is, is really as much as you can knowing, like you said, start with in mind, uh, you know, knowing, imagine what is the outcome of this? What is it that I'm expecting to get? Um, I think, like I said, in the case of photography, well, not particularly because of phones, is that no, I just point and shoot randomly. But I imagine that professional photographers probably probably have a pretty clear idea in mind of what the, the photo that they're trying to get, right? Yeah, it's so true. Uh, some of the most you know famous or most memorable uh, photographs in in American history, you know, they, they were planned. They were these these photos were realized at the end. Um, you know, there there is this really popular one. It's called the migrant uh, migrant mother. And um, it's it, it was it was a image that was taken um, for the purpose of um, just uh, sympathizing with uh, the Great Depression and people who are suffering. And um, the photographer who took the picture, she had to take a series of photos to get to the end result. And so I think it's really important that 
you know, even if we have to take multiple attempts at something that we, we do get what we want at the end. Um, and, and so it, it's like what you said, Bart, it's, it, it does take a lot of um, planning and initiative. And even for um, many, you know, professional or commercial shots, you know, there's a whole team that's planning these, uh, what, what the end picture will look like, right? And they uh, are inspired by the people who are on their teams to evolve that vision and, and really produce like an amazing end result. And so that's something that's always worth considering. Good stuff. I know what you mean about the migrant mother. I think also some very famous pictures from the American Civil War were also planned. Like after battles, they would like, you know, take someone and move them to a specific place um, because they really wanted to get that particular shot. Anyway, though, keep going. Yeah, um, that's also really interesting. I'll have to add to that. <laughs> that that even in post, uh, post-production, uh, post-processing, people will blur certain parts of an image or maybe they'll even uh, Photoshop certain areas too just so that people uh, who are looking at the end result, they'll focus on what they, what the, on the message, on, on what they really need to focus on. Awesome. Good. So if this will advance, I will be very happy. <laughs> Don't worry, it's okay. <laughs> Great, so the second one is about cross-functional teams. Um, and so this is about building teams that have uh, the autonomy to make their own decisions uh, and to own uh, and to end their uh, entire life cycle. So uh, in terms of, so you can take, for example, uh, a developer. They own, they're fully responsible for the development of their code. And the reality of it is our, our DevOps practices and our DevOps engineers, they're here to support that. Whether it's increasing visibility into a CI pipeline, into, you know, bugs into defects into things that aren't working they're here to support that and i think um the 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 main goal of management is to to encourage that and facilitate that and so when you're building cross-functional teams you really do want to uh, encourage this willingness to collaborate across different teams because uh is is not just the responsibility of ops or the responsibility of developers. It's everyone's responsibility, just like security is everyone's responsibility. And so uh, one of the core principles of DevOps is to build these cross-functional delivery teams. Good. We actually, we actually got a quote, we got a question about that. Um, so how to deal with other teams as DevOps, we're supposed to be in the bridge between ops and dev. In theory, that's nice, but in practice, there can be a lot of contention. Where the DevOps fit in a uh, flat or high, where do DevOps fit in a flat or hierarchical organization? What authority do they have, and who gives it to them? And do you think they belong as a side service, or are they directly attached to a pro- uh, to a project under a product manager, for example? Great. That's uh, that's a couple of questions built. Yeah, into yeah, that. yeah. You, you, you got you, but you got fans. This is what this means. This is good. <laughs> So, um, uh, so you want me to, we can, we can unpack it. All right. Yeah. Let's um, unpack so it. where, uh, where do DevOps fit in a flat or hierarchical organization? Yeah. In, in a flatter organization, the lines are, are, are blurred, right? Because you, you end up wearing many hats. Um, but I, I think it goes back to saying like, uh, you're, you're that conduit for continuous, uh, continuous delivery of value. Right. So sometimes that's that means um, if you have developers on their team, on your teams or uh, IT ops on the teams, you're you're kind of looking at both sides and trying to uh, help help with that flow of value. So if delivery teams have problems um, delivering artifacts or delivering uh, packaged code that's ready to be shipped out, then that's where DevOps can kind of come in and say, well, let's build a CI CD pipeline or let's build some of these practices and uh, tools so that you can uh, really depend on some of those things to get better quality out the door. Um, And then likewise, if we're having issues with security, right, maybe even introducing things like vulnerability scanning into our processes. So you're really looking at things from a very high level about how every single little piece kind of flows through that 
DevOps lifecycle that I showed. Okay, good. And then the authority that they have and who gives it to them? I think that depends on your organization. Right? Yeah, I think that does depend <laughs> on a lot of organizations. Yeah, I, I think sometimes, uh, I think like when you have a very large DevOps group, um, you'll you'll get, it'll be sometimes a little bit easier to define because you have some, you have other people in the group and sometimes they can be attached to a certain application, right? They're there to support that team. Maybe you even have like mini teams. Again, it goes back to topologies. You can have mini teams that deliver one service and you have one DevOps person there versus uh, some other organizations where you have a DevOps group and they kind of spread themselves out uh, across different applications and they kind of get to know it, it really depends. Um, and I, I think it also changes too for depending on what your challenges are, what your priorities are for a lot of people, they're kind of start still just starting out with agile and DevOps. And so that agile part of it is where they struggle and they're still kind of, maybe they don't even have a lot of unit tests, um, or they don't have a good, um, uh, just foundation for delivering, then you know you you may be more heavily involved with that particular team, and and so you may be assigned to a team, and then in the future when you're trying to scale things out, you're kind of involved with multiple teams. If that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Good. Um, and then, do you think they belong as a side service or directly attached to a project under a project on a product manager, for example? Mm, I think that also yeah. might depend on the organization. Um, I think that that could have have something to do with it. Um, that's okay. Good. Good. I think you can just, I think we can keep going, but anyway, thank you everybody for the questions. Keep them coming. Nice. Awesome. And this one's the last uh, key principle that I want to share. And this is uh, the commitment to the journey. Um, as I mentioned, it's, it's kind of tough because for a lot of people, they think like a DevOps is an end goal. It's something that you can achieve, but in reality, again, it's this continual a set of practices, this continual culture that lives in our organizations for delivering better software faster in a more repeatable fashion. And in this way, that doesn't burn everybody else out on your teams, right? And so even when it's not perfect um, at the beginning, even when it, you know things are, are really difficult, um, there's this idea that we're going to continuously improve to get to this place where um, things are ideal and value is flowing out uh, continuously. And, and you know, this, this commitment to the journey involves things like learning from failures, right? Being open to talking about failures and, you know, saying like, hey, you know, this was, this was a mistake and we're going to learn from it. And this is how we're going to change things because we can only do things um, the best way that we know how to at that moment. And so when we learn extra things, that's when we can make things in, uh, better. And then there's also the sense of experimentation, right? Being not afraid to try new technologies to make things better. And I, I think um, as long as you kind of have this spirit, then um, you'll do fine in, in DevOps. And I like this quote that I have down here from Brene Brown um, that says, I'm not here to be right. I'm here to get it right. And I think that's a really great mindset for management or team leads or even individual contributors to come in, uh, in with is just this idea that we're not here to say like, things have to be this way. We're not here to micromanage anyone either or say like, hey, you know, you're not doing enough. Uh, no. You know, like this is uh, everyone's responsible for delivering a code. Everyone's responsible for delivering value. Uh, we're here to get it right together. Awesome. So uh, I, I kind of wanted to share some of the key principles in photography um, because getting to the end result can kind of feel a little bit um, weird if you don't know. Uh, some of the key principles about photography. Um, and so when we take a picture, we actually we actually deal with uh, a lot of parameters, but these are the three main ones that control what our end picture looks like. And it's aperture, shutter speed, and ISO. Aperture uh, refers to how much light you let into your, your camera sensor. So all of our cameras are built with sensors. Um, some of them may not be, but 
we'll just say that our cameras are built with sensors and these sensors are actually made out of MOSFETs that are sensitive to light. And so when uh, our camera um, uh, shutter closes, um, it actually lets in a certain amount of light for a certain amount of time. Um, and it has a certain sensitivity to that light that produces an image. And so in Aperture, we're controlling how, uh, how, how wide that opening is when we click that shutter. And what happens is it, it really does, our, our, our cameras are very much like how our eyes work. Um, the, more, the more light that you let in uh, to your eyes, the, the, the more you'll be able to focus on things that are close to you. Um, and that impacts something called depth of, depth of field. And so uh, aperture is this F number and the smaller the F number, the wider the, uh, the opening is. And so if you have a very small opening, uh, you get a picture of the sunflower, but also everything in the background is focused versus in, um, in the smaller F number on the picture on the left, you don't see as much as of the background and it's kind of blurred. So you can kind of toy around with the setting. Um, also, um, this this is something that you sometimes have to deal with, in, depending on how bright um, you uh, how bright your location is. So if your location is really really bright, say for example, you are staring at uh, at the sun. Don't do that. But if you're staring at the sun, you probably don't want to let in that much light <laughs> into your eyes because you're blinded. So it's just something that you control in photography. Second thing that we can control in photography is shutter speed. So shutter speed is how fast you um, have that shutter open and close to let light into your camera and take that picture. Uh, and shutter speed actually is related to um, uh, movement in the, the image. So if your shutter speed is really slow, then you'll kind of get a lot of movement in the image. So on the right side, we have a, six, a second shutter speed and you can kind of see things are a little bit blurry uh, because there was just movement in, 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 in the grass and in the water versus in a shorter sh shutter speed, you have this kind of crisp image, right? And so if your target or whoever it is that you're taking a picture of, your subject is moving a lot. Say for example, uh, you're, you're taking a picture of a cheetah that's running like 60 miles per hour, right? Uh, you'll want to go at a higher shutter speed so that you can catch that crisp action, right? Um, and so shutter speed is a, is a measure of seconds and you can kind of see that there. And then this third, this third parameter that we're tweaking and trying to learn from, and you know, these, these three parameters, they kind of affect each other, right? Uh, this, this third parameter is around ISO, which is a measure of sensitivity to, uh, to light. What happens is if we tune our sensitivity up really high to something like 3,200 or 40, um, no, 64,000, uh, we'll actually get a lot more noise in our image versus in a lower ISO level where you're not as uh, sensitive to the light, uh, your image will come out darker, um, but you'll get this crisper image. Um, and in some cases, if you tune your ISO really, really low, um, your picture will just come out black because you, you're just so insensitive to light that you don't recognize it. Um, and so you may lose features. And so with all of these parameters, you can kind of tune them to the worst image possible or the best image possible, right? But it's kind of this game where you're, you're playing uh, with all of these settings so that you can get a picture that's clear or maybe not clear if you don't want it to be. Um, and, and that's that's kind of how we go, go about these three areas. And I kind of think of these three areas as similar to DevOps because uh, your goal is really to, to pay attention to your people, your process and your technology and not be blindsided by any one component when you're trying to get to the end result. So that's probably just something that you wanna consider is like, you know, how, how uh, like how how much of a pulse do I have on the people on my team on my processes? Do I care more about my processes than my people? Uh, am I uh, am I not paying attention to my processes at all? Are my processes even helping anyone? Um, are they working with the technology? Do they need to change? Right? If we're throwing in new technology, are we ensuring that people are enabled? 
these are some of the questions that we ask, just like we would ask in photography. Like, you know, is my shutter speed too slow? Is, does my aperture need to change? Kind of get to a lot of these things. And that's kind of how I, I think about, uh, think about the two. I mean, related to the, re, yeah, related to that is what you were saying earlier too about, you know, uh, about failure. I mean, I, as, as a lot of people out there, like I, I think I got a camera, like a reasonable camera in, I think it was 2010. And yeah. And of course I think there's, it's also with digital cameras, you know, you can take as many pictures as you want, and then you go and delete them. But that would say the vast majority of the pictures that I were, you know, that I've taken in my life have not been amazing. You know, that like to get it, to really get it right is a multi-step process of trial and error. And like you said, once you become aware of those other ingredients about how to adjust the ISO, and if you go out in the middle of the day, or if you're in a city with a lot of artificial light or all those different factors that can come into it, I think in the same way with DevOps software development in general, um, to be forgiving towards yourself that you're going to make mistakes and it's not the end of the world because you mentioned that as being an important part of it. And I wanted to know what are some mistakes that you've made and what strategies would you suggest about how to get those things out in the open more comfortably rather than, oh, I hope nobody notices and we'll just try to pretend like nothing happened. Sorry, could you repeat that question? Yeah. I was distracted you, me you, mentioned, you mentioned earlier about how... Um, how it's important to create a culture where people can acknowledge their mistakes and get them out in the open. What strategies do you use on a personal level to do that? So that you, like I said, so you don't have to feel like you're hiding something that might be inconvenient, but rather just to kind of own it in the same way that you take a picture that's not so good. You're like, yeah, that picture wasn't so good. I'll try better the next time. What's your strategy? Yeah, yeah I, I definitely lean into retrospectives. So at the end of sprints or end of bodies of work or after we do a delivery, I lean into um, a retrospective. And that's, you know, that's kind of my space to say uh, or admit things that went well and didn't go well for me, you know, and, and it's not about pointing fingers at anyone else. It's about my perceptions and what I think I could do better or what the team could do better. And I always try to target it towards a team setting because the last thing you want to do is point you know, call someone else out for their mistakes, or, you know, you may not even feel comfortable calling out yourself for your own mistakes, but I think it's something that's worth um, putting up there and sharing with the team. And, and even if you don't own up to that mistake, you still, you know, you still acknowledge that it is something that you can improve on. Right. And whether you do that internally or externally, I think it's a, it's a, it's a good way to kind of um, give yourself that time to acknowledge it. Um, that that's kind of, that's that's my that's my advice there. Good. All right. Perfect. Um, another question. Uh, you know, in terms of this mentality, you know, I mean, since our community, you know, we do we do talk a lot about Kubernetes and things like that. Are there any things in terms of mentality and culture that maybe we haven't mentioned that you think are additionally important in the Kubernetes world, or do you think that a lot of these things carry over quite smoothly? Hmm. Yeah, I I honestly think that I I see the biggest um, issues around technology and people when it comes to Kubernetes. Um, because I, I mentioned this a few times that I don't think Kubernetes is really a tool for developers. Um, if, it, if it was, we wouldn't have so many questions around it. And there wouldn't be um, all of these other uh, third-party vendors or flavors or distributions of Kubernetes trying to make this uh, easier for, for developers. So I think that there's just a lot of questions around that. Um, and there's kind of a scale gap around Kubernetes. And, and so I, I think if for organizations that are trying to bridge the gap between um, between their their people and their technology, or for anyone who's migrating to Kubernetes, right? Just try to particularly pay attention to how people are responding to new technologies uh, in the Kubernetes ecosystem, because there are so many uh, out there right now. And yes, yes, true. It, it, <laughs> yeah. it helps. And, like, and every day more. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you can say like, yes, it helps the DevOps lifecycle. It helps, you know, our workflows. It helps with so many things, but um, just because it helps doesn't mean like everyone's going to be able to like, magically know how this works and everything you're going to snap your fingers and we're going to be able to solve all these problems it does take time and um it does take enablement and new skills sometimes because 
you're you're not born knowing everything about technology. Like you spend ten years, um, you know, working with this particular technology, and then not know nothing uh, about yeah. the next thing. You know, so good stuff. Good. Let's keep going. Sweet. Yeah, I love these questions. Um, someone mentioned Brene Brown in the chat, and yeah, I I love all of her content. And she actually writes this book on uh, Dare to Lead. It's called Dare to Lead. And it actually brings up vulnerability and being able to own up to your mistakes in in these kind of team and organizational settings. So, uh, Bart, your question on that reminded me of that. I think it's really good. That's the thing is everybody's going to make mistakes from the from the intern to the CTO. And so it's it's not about the mistakes you make. Is how you obviously I understand there are different kinds of mistakes and ones that should be repeated <laughs> or ones that should never happen, but. Uh, I think that, you know, it's part of being human and it's going to be part of the process. It's going to happen. So I have a strategy for it. And when I make mistakes, I generally try to own them as quickly as possible and to give as deep of an analysis as, as I can in order to show, you know, ownership of the things that I've done. Yeah. Yeah. And that's how we grow together as a team. And you also inspire other people on your team to, consider like what all this means, what this journey means for everyone too. Yeah, completely. Yeah, I love that. Cool. So uh, without further ado, I'll get to uh, the last part of this presentation, which is the practices and the tooling. I know we have about 10 minutes left to go and I think we'll be able to make it. All right. So um, the way I think about practices and tooling, I think about it as like the the conduits for getting to where you need to go. You can't take a picture without a camera and you can't take a picture without uh, a battery to power that camera, right? So you kind of need to think about the equipment and the gear that you'll need to be able to get where to where you want to go. And so, you know, there are certain things that you want, wouldn't want to leave the house without um, in terms of photography, right? And I listed a couple because I've been subject to forgetting one or many of these things. And, you know, these these are our equipment, these are our tools and um, how we work with them is, is our practices. So um, this is my list for photography, um, but I also have a list for DevOps and that's what I'm gonna be sharing. So this first uh, tool practice, I think is really important and, um, uh, I, I think this is where I want to start because it's so, so important. And this one is about version control. Um, I think now more than ever, we're starting to see everybody using version control. Before it was kind of like a devs tool, but I think today we're seeing DevOps engineers, IT ops, security folks really embracing this idea of versioning their infrastructure, versioning their code, versioning pretty much anything that they can. Um, and so if you're just starting out with uh, version control, you may, maybe you haven't had a lot of practice with it, I recommend you at least know the basic functions and actions of how to use Git and how to use uh, source code management. And the basics are here. It's, it's know how to add files, know how to commit them, know how to push them, uh, know how to deal with merge conflicts, and know how to uh, work with branches. So it's fairly straightforward, but this will get you really far in um, just the basics. And you'll be surprised, like just committing to these uh, five actions, like understanding how they work, just those five things, you'll know pretty much everything you need to know uh, about Git. Of course, like there, there are other things that, you know, like um, hard resets and all the other stuff, but just getting these five down initially it'll take you a long way. All right, we got a couple of questions. Do the DevOps force the Git flow to the dev teams or are they forced to comply with the devs? Oh, interesting. Um, so I think it depends on your organization. I hate saying that. <laughs> but it's true. Um, yeah, there yeah. are all different kinds of companies out there. Yeah. Um, I think in terms of uh, your Git flow, that's the thing. Well, better yet, better yet, because there's a follow-up question to that from Corey. Thank you, Corey. Is that what do you think is a good flow in 2021? Oh, I'll get to this. Okay. Um, so we want to save that for later then? Yeah. Okay. And then we have another question. Yeah. Um, when we think DevOps, we think about the eight, you know, that figure that you showed uh, at the beginning. 
According to GCP's videos, they have a series class SRE implements DevOps. SRE feels much different and doesn't fit in this eight. Where do you think SRE stands? Is it really important in the same line? What about cloud architects? Anyway, let's just maybe touch on because I have seen some articles talking about DevOps versus SRE. Interestingly enough, we mentioned Alex Jones earlier, who's in the DevOps Institute, but is also an SRE. Um, how do you see that? Is there a, you know, a big difference? What are the differences? Yeah, I think the, the biggest differences are just around like what they focus on. Um, SREs are really uh, are really trying to measure and ensure reliability across their applications versus DevOps engineers who maybe just think who are you know really focused on flow. There is some overlap. Like I've seen a lot of SRE teams actually own uh, the CD or CI process uh, for their applications, but I think there is like a lot of um, uh, there is like a class of SREs or like a, a group of SREs and like whatever organization that you want to take um, implementing uh, DevOps. And a lot of times they actually own um, specific environments. So like if you want to do a production deployment into an environment, they'll actually say, well, um, you messed up a lot of times this month. You, you released, you caused like five incidents in the production environment. We're going to close this down until you actually... Uh, fix some of those defects and bugs. And so they actually have a lot of power to do that. And I, I've seen like certain uh, SRE handbooks that say like, you kind of want to budget errors and, um, you know, measure how reliable your application is. And, and that's what they're on the hook for. Um, in terms of cloud architects, again, depends on your organization, what they actually end up doing. Um, I think architects, they, they kind of oversee the architecture of uh, your applications. So, you know, if you are designing like a, a service mesh, um, you know, kind of infrastructure or um, a layout, you know, they'll they'll kind of map things around and reason about it, and then they'll uh, actually enable the team to help to to implement that. So that's that's kind of where they live. Good stuff. Cool. Let's keep going. Sweet. So uh, the reason why I actually ended up talking about source code management is because it's actually pretty much the, the trigger or the start of our software delivery process. So you develop the code, uh, you commit it to this source code management tool. It's versioned, right? There's a version of the application here. If everything goes wrong or crappy, we can always revert back to the old one. We have copies of all of our code, right? That's that's basically the premise behind version control, the premise behind source code management is that you have a copy of all the changes of your code ever in existence, right? Uh, and so in continuous integration, we're really focusing on enabling a developer workflow to get from code commit when you submit that code to a packaged piece of code, built piece of code that we can then use for our production deployments. And so this process involves different tools that you can use, right? You can have your uh, GitHub repository, your GitLab repository, Bitbucket repository, right? Commit some code into that. And then it'll launch this continuous integration process that actually builds our application. So compiles it, builds it, packages it up, right? Tests it, and then uh, submits it to an artifact repository where it can, that, that version can be released uh, for continuous delivery. And so whatever you do in this kind of area, right, it, it may help with your continuous integration, but at the end of the day, this helps your developer workflows. And so the really important thing here that you want to focus on, if you're a DevOps engineer, if you're thinking about DevOps, right, just do I have enough tests in my continuous integration pipeline? Because if I don't, then what happens is I make some code commit, some trash code, right? I don't know, it compiles, but it doesn't actually it doesn't actually do what it's supposed to do. It'll pass this test, it'll become an artifact, and it'll it'll get carried on to further, further away from you, further away from your, you as a developer. And you may not get it back until two months down the road, three months down the road when you've you know made so many other changes, don't even remember what the feature was. And uh, you didn't catch that, 
you didn't catch that earlier. And what you want to do in DevOps is you want to shift all of these issues closer to the left in that in this life cycle, right? Closer to the left so that you can capture those mistakes before they actually happen. Um, and so in this process as well, you have things like static code analysis. So in our cube, uh, you have vulnerability scanning. You can scan your containers, you can scan your images, just make sure things that, you know, there's no, uh, there's nothing wrong with your dependencies. There's no security vulnerabilities, things like that. And then uh, with the artifacts, you can also version them, right? And, you know, call it a beta, call it an alpha, call it a final release, whatever you want to do, right? But the goal is you build once, you have this artifact, and now you can do something with it. Okay. One quick question. Uh, with container repositories like ECR on EWS, um, sorry, on AWS, does a dedicated artifact solution like JFrog really make sense? Mm, it, it depends. Maybe you don't. Uh, it, it depends on what additional functionality your like JFrog artifactory is going to provide you. Um, sometimes you'll just use one or the other. But again, like uh, at the same time, some people will on on at least cloud um, public cloud infrastructure they'll kind of want their own uh, third-party vendor in case they need to migrate out of the cloud uh, for whatever reason. So like for us, uh, for Harness specifically, we were on AWS and then we had to migrate to GCP. That's when it, it kind of made sense. You know, it, it makes sense to have a Nexus repository or JFOG artifactory if you are on different infrastructures or different clouds, right? You don't want to get locked into any particular solution. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's my response there. Yeah, great questions. Cool. And then, so we actually get to the continuous delivery aspect of it, right? When we pick up that artifact and we try to put it into a production environment. And this process actually takes quite a bit of stuff, right? Requires some infrastructure because our code needs something to run on now, right? So customers can use it. Um, there's, there's a certain strategy to how we release or deliver that application out to our customers. Maybe we slowly roll it out. Maybe we, we roll it out, but only release it out to a subset of users. Um, and, and then we also need to verify that this application works the way that we're expecting it to. So we may have things like Prometheus, uh, New Relic, AppDynamics, Splunk, kind of watching over, ensuring that there's no major incidents. If there are major incidents, right? We need a plan to roll back. And that's what continuous delivery is about. It's not just about getting something running on a server. We actually want to be able to do this in a repeatable way. And so when we talk about continuous, when we talk about continuous delivery, uh, we're actually trying to get from artifact to production. So the hands of the customer. And the difference between continuous delivery and continuous deployment is that in continuous delivery, you control when it gets to the users. In continuous deployment, you do that code commit, it goes through the entire lifecycle, and it deploys right away. It gets released to the customers right away. Uh, in continuous delivery, you kind of decide. You can say, well, I don't want to trigger this yet, or I only want to release on Sundays, so, that kind of thing. Uh, and, and so it's like I said, uh, we're really thinking about uh, operationalizing the code so that it is ready to go out into production. And so you may decide that before you release it to a production environment as part of your continuous delivery uh, pipeline, you'll release it to a QA environment or a testing environment or even a developer environment for people to interact with it, kind of test it out, manage that change, right? Uh, fail that pipeline if it's not working, right? And then you can kind of decide, oh, I think this is ready. So let's, let's get it to production. And we have a continuous delivery pipeline that does that. And so one of the biggest things, if you want to succeed with continuous delivery, is infrastructure as code. So like I mentioned, all of our software needs to run on hardware. And so one of the biggest things that you can do uh, in order to make this process easier or better and faster is to introduce infrastructure as code. If you define your, your infrastructure in terms of code. Um, and that's this practice of infrastructure as code. So uh, there's a couple of different things that you have to deal with when you're working with infrastructure, right? The first part is provisioning it. So standing it up, installing it, making sure, making sure it works, right? It's kind of the baseline. And then afterwards, you need to configure it, right? 
So maybe it needs a certain library, it needs a certain configuration setup, it needs another dependency before it can run this application. Uh, that's, that's kind of what you have to deal with when you're working with infrastructure. And then this last bit is maintenance, right? Ensuring that uh, if it needs a new version of something, that it has that. If it needs, uh, if it's down for whatever reason, it's broken for whatever reason, that you can fix it. And so infrastructure as code tries to manage these three areas. Um, and so if you're really trying to get to learn more about this area or you, you know, you're looking to start your DevOps career, really recommend that you know uh, YAML and then pick up uh, HashiCorp Terraform. Or if, you're, if you know that you're targeting a particular organization that uses AWS, maybe check out CloudFormation. And then optionally, you can also go for any um, configuration uh, automation, infrastructure automation tools like Ansible, Puppet, Puppet, or Chef. And then likewise, if you're in a Kubernetes world, you're probably going to need uh, uh, to learn a little bit about package managers, Kubernetes package managers through Helm charts. So those are, those are kind of the key areas that you want to focus on in terms of technology. Sweet. Do we have any questions? Yes, we do. We gotta. We kind of gotta start wrapping up. I honestly, I have. I have to. I have to. I have to. Get, it's my mother-in-law's birthday today, and it's it's really true. She doesn't have seven birthdays a year. <laughs> but let's know. Let's know. Don't worry. We got a quick question here once again from Corey. What's your preferred IAC Terraform uh, versus CDK versus CloudFormation Pulumi? What do you think? Yeah, a Terraform. Uh, it's probably the most popular one. It's also open source. So the thing that you'll see is just with. Um, these uh, these sort of DevOps tools, there's a heavy preference for open source. And yeah. so if you can leverage open source technologies, if you have a kind of understanding of one tool that's an open source, you can kind of relate it to a lot of the other vendor um, solutions that are provided. Okay. Yeah, very agnostic and flexible. Yeah, I, I, I agree with Sergio. Yeah, thanks, Sergio. This is literally my last slide. <laughs> no, 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 so. don't worry, no, no, don't worry. No, no, I think, because I think the thing is this infrastructure is code thing, I think is super interesting. And we had a couple of developer advocates from, um, from HashiCore on the meetup last year. And the thing is from a developer experience perspective, or just like, it's, it's really well done. And so that's why there are so many fans of it. Anyway, keep going. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan. So um, just something to note. Uh, and then this this last bit around here, I know we're over time. No, um, there there are other practices, right, for the flow of value. Um, you know, you'll hear things about value stream mapping or value stream management, you know, testing in production, chaos testing. Um, I mentioned topologies, right? There's so many other um, practices that we couldn't cover today, but I think if you're if you're just starting out, these are kind of the five key or four or five key practices that you should really focus in on and just know as a baseline and it'll get you really far. So, oh, no, just kidding. I have another one. <laughs> I'm sorry, okay. this is the last one. I actually wanted to talk about DevSecOps because every every person will want to <laughs> kind of- Yeah, no, no, because we actually, I actually had a couple of questions about that that I'm going to forward you on Slack, but no, go for it, go for it. Sweet, yeah. So um, the, the next thing uh, about- uh, DevOps is just this idea of secrets and identity management. So securing your sensitive information. Um, and some really great ones are HashiCorp Vault and Keycloak. Just get to know those. Uh, if you have some time, I recommend just knowing uh, what KMS, Key Management Service, and other encryption services do uh, in that wheelhouse. Um, but, you know, I just want to say, like, for things like the solar winds hack, a lot of the a lot of the hacks that we see today, um, it's just because of exposed applications uh, secrets. Any any secrets that you may have accidentally left out in plain text is the reason why someone can gather get access to your source code, put in malicious um, malicious code, and then like you know have that be shipped out throughout your CI/CD pipeline and into the hands of your customers, and it really sucks. And so. One of the things that CI/CD helps with, and what this DevOps lifecycle helps with, is making sure that you actually secure these application secrets because they live in so many parts of our um, software development lifecycle. They exist in our source code management, right? Sensitive secrets, access to certain environments, 
they live in our CI pipelines. They live in our orchestrators. They live in our runtimes. So just something to know. Um, but with that, you know, I, I spent a lot of time here today talking about the principles and uh, the mindsets around DevOps because I think um, it really matters what you think about DevOps because that will inform how you work with your technologies. It'll inform how you work with other people on your team. And so one of the key takeaways here is to always just kind of ask someone else, what does DevOps mean to you? And uh, that's, that's the end of my presentation. I, I want to thank everybody for joining. I, I really appreciate the time. Seriously, great questions. And that's what I just left a message in the chat. Uh, this conversation could obviously go on for more than one session. 2021, I think we're going to have enough time. I hope we have enough time to have Tiffany back on as a speaker because these insights were great. Obviously, the comparisons and connections with photography um, gave us a really nice framework to be, to be able to, to get in deeper. And the questions are a perfect evidence of that. There's lots of curiosity about this. Um, follow Tiffany on Twitter. Follow Harness. We didn't get a chance to talk enough about Harness. That's why I actually have a couple of questions about Harness that I'm going to get in Slack. But I invite everybody, please jump in on our Slack or you can ask Tiffany questions directly on Twitter. Um, very, very nice to have you, Tiffany. Normally, we have uh, our graphic recorder, Angel, who is sick today, but we have something else that will be ready for you by tonight, if not tomorrow at the latest. So there will be a wonderful artistic representation of the things that were mentioned today from another artist who's on our team. Um, so like I said, you've got all of Tiffany's contact info there. Please, you can obviously see she's a great resource. She's done other podcasts, very open person, willing to help. That's what we're all about here in the data on Kubernetes community. Tiffany, thank you so much for your presentation. It was very, very good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Bart. Thanks, everyone. Have a good rest of your day. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.